Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to an episode of Flyer Labs, and today we have to talk to Adam Coates. And Adam is the director of Badu Silicon Valley AI Lab. And of course, uh, Badu is uh, based in China, is one of the largest internet companies in the world. As you can guess, Adam has quite a uh, background in artificial, artificial intelligence. He spent uh, the years 2000-2012 at Stanford, where he ended up with his bachelor's, master's, and PhD. And his research has been around computer vision for autonomous cars, deep learning for speech, uh, large-scale deep learning in general, and computer, and computer vision for robotics, and machine learning for helicopter aerobatics, which we're going to have to probably hear about that. So, yeah, and in 2015, Adam was named as one of MIT's 35 innovators under 35. So I'm really uh, glad that Adam came on the show and curious to see what he's up to now and what he's excited about. So Adam, thanks, thanks for having for, me, Dave. Yeah, definitely. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, it'd be fun to hear a little bit about your background. Um, I'm kind of curious. And you spent a lot of time at Stanford. Like you must have been a must have been a Stanford master by the time you you left. But I, I was curious what pro, what, yeah. what projects you worked on and um, yeah. And well, when I, I first started school, I, I kind of intended to get my bachelor's degree uh, and then go off and, and uh, start working. But um, sort of as fate would have it, I um, was sort of into remote-controlled helicopters. I, I had learned to fly them in high school as just a hobby. And um, uh, one of the professors at Stanford convinced me to take an introductory artificial intelligence course. And it so happened that the professor teaching that course um, had a project that involved getting helicopters to fly using machine learning algorithms. Huh. And so even though um, I actually had a somewhat crazy quarter, I ended up dropping that class. Um, but uh, oddly enough, before I got out of the class, I, I uh, got in touch with that professor, who turned out was Andrew Ng, uh, who many people know now, hmm. um, and started working on building a helicopter that, that would later be flown by a machine learning algorithm. Uh, because of that project, I actually uh, stuck around at Stanford to, to get my master's degree and later to start the PhD program there. Um, and so that was really one of the first projects that, that got me involved in, in artificial intelligence. And, and what year was that that you started on that project? Um, I, I probably would have started hacking on it in about 2003, 2004. Wow. Okay. Um, and then uh, I think most of the the final results when we really decided there was nothing left for, for us to do, um, was maybe in 2008. Okay. All right. Wow. And did you, uh, what was the idea is just to, um, kind of direct the helicopter to do a certain task or a certain location or what was the goal? Of that yeah. Project? So one of the things that's really cool about the project is that, um, you know, as a computer programmer, you sort of get into this mindset uh, that you can build virtually anything. One of the reasons I always loved computers, because growing up, I loved building things. And computers gave you a way to sort of get outside of the physical world and build pretty much anything you could imagine. You were just limited by sort of your own mind and, and how much time you had to code it. <laughs> and um, when it came to things like helicopters, though, it turns out that you know, I as a human being could learn to hover a helicopter or, or you know, fly 
fly simple maneuvers. And you could even find expert pilots who could fly crazy aerobatics, things that you that didn't look aerodynamically possible. Uh, but somehow they had figured out by by trial and error and, and by being taught from other experts uh, how to fly these incredible routines. And so, uh, unfortunately, if you just try to build a helicopter that can do this under computer control, it's not enough to be a great programmer. Um, there, there's just no way for me to sit down, even today, and write all of the instructions uh, for how it is that you fly a loop or do a flip in the air, because the aerodynamics of a helicopter are just so complex uh, that, that no human being, no, no expert in aerodynamics even, can write down the equations for how that thing behaves. Um, so the idea behind this project was that we were going to take machine learning algorithms and, and artificial intelligence methods and see if we could write a computer program that would learn to fly this helicopter uh, based on watching humans fly and, and based on looking at data from, uh, from human flights. Uh, and that turned out to be really successful, that even though I still cannot to this day write down all the instructions for how you do a flip, I can write a piece of software that learns to, to perform a flip on its own uh, for, wow. for a very sophisticated aircraft. And this was one of the like extremely thrilling events early in my career that got me excited about AI, because it was sort of like computer programming taken to the next level, that that thing that you couldn't even describe uh, how to solve on your own, you could still build a computer program that would learn to solve it um, all by itself. Gotcha. And and we don't have to talk about helicopters the whole time. But one last question, and and for the audience, and the the way that you uh, you uh, the helicopter or the machine learn is essentially you would perform the the loop or the flip, <laughs> and then the machine would understand kind of like the. Well, I don't know all the little uh, nuances of helicopter control, but it would understand the controls and um, exactly what type of inputs yeah. are necessary. So it turns out that um, the aerodynamics of how a helicopter behaves are just horribly complicated. Oh. Um, there are all kinds of nasty things that can happen to you. Um, so, for example, if a helicopter is just hovering in place, it churns up a lot of air around the rotor blades, and it kind of sort of gets this tube of air going that's being pulled down through the, the rotor. Hmm. And if you descend uh, just straight down at just the right speed, you can have really awful chaotic effects happening uh, that you really wouldn't expect unless somebody explained it to you. Um, and describing what happens in all of these cases is just is too complex. And so what we did was we had a human fly the helicopter around uh, and fly through all of these different um, unusual stages. Many of them would be quite dangerous to do in a real helicopter. Um, and we collect a bunch of data from that, and then we let the computer look at all of the data to understand how the helicopter behaves. If I move the controls this way in this situation, this is what's going to happen next. Um, and very often, uh, the computer has to realize that if I move the controls this way in a certain situation, uh, there could actually be a wide range of outcomes. And one of the challenges after that is, given how the helicopter behaves, once you've learned how it moves roughly from the data, you have to also be able to learn from uh, experience. Because if I, as a person, tell you to fly uh, a perfect loop, uh, it turns out that it's almost impossible. It's just because of momentum and, and airflow and all of these different variables, 
it's almost impossible to fly it perfectly. And so if you ask the computer to fly this loop perfectly, it often makes weird mistakes because you're asking it for something that is literally impossible. Um, but if you have a human to demonstrate it, you have a human fly several imperfect loops, it turns out that the computer is capable of looking at all the things that the human has done and taking out the parts that are extraneous, all the mistakes that the human made, but keeping the parts that are really consistent. Uh, and so you can actually watch a human fly the same routine several times and figure out what the routine was that they intended to do. And you can see, for instance, that a loop is almost a perfect circle, but it involves speeding up and slowing down mm. at different parts. And these are the things that as a human would be very hard to code yourself. Um, but the machine learning algorithm is able to figure out by watching uh, an expert fly. And so when you put all these things together, it turns out that you can go fly these amazing aerobatic routines just by watching an expert do it a few times. Hmm. Interesting. Oh, man, this is good. That could be a whole podcast, so we'll stop there, but uh, we'll, we'll keep moving on. But uh, <laughs> I got so many other questions. Yeah, you, you're very good at explaining uh, how it all works. And so, uh, yeah, I have more questions on Stanford, but maybe uh, we'll, we'll see if we have time. We can come back to them. But you did mention the – you know, I'm always, I'm always uh, interested in people I interview, like how they grew up. You know, you said that you like to build stuff uh, – uh, what type of stuff do you like to build growing up? Well, I mean, I think I was a pretty normal kid. I, okay. I grew up in a small town, uh, about uh, 4,000 people. It's actually a little tourist town in California. And, um, you know, there's lots of stuff to do outside, um, but I, I always grew up with a love of building things. Uh, my father was a, a contractor, so I kind of started out with, you know, the hammer and nails and, and stuff like that. But uh, as a little kid, you know, you can't build a whole house. <laughs> so I was always sort of tinkering with small things. And when we first got a computer, that's when I really realized that, oh, wow, I, here's this thing that I can do uh, to build things much bigger um, than, than I can uh, possibly do myself uh, in the real world. You know, so as much as I love, like, Legos and, and uh, you know, erector sets and all these sort of uh, fun toys, uh, to learn to build things. The thing that really got me about computers was this ability to build things as big as your imagination. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. All right. So in 2000, about 2012, well, you spent some time in Indiana too. Um, but I, I was curious, you know, was it, uh, how was it leaving Stanford? Like, did you enjoy your time there for the most part? Would, did you ever think? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I, I definitely had the sensation uh, when I left Stanford that uh, it was the end of a, a very long era. But um, I think, you know, I, I was actually really happy moving on. When I first moved out to Indiana, I spent some time at Indiana University Bloomington um, and really just, A, fell in love with, with Bloomington and, and all the faculty at IU. Um, so I met uh, Jeffrey Fox, who's actually a, a senior faculty there. Uh, and they introduced me to a lot of um, sort of background with supercomputing. And I think this was very much uh, inspirational for a lot of the work that I've been doing today, where we're figuring out how to run neural networks on much faster, much more powerful machines, um, which is powering a lot of progress in AI. And so uh, I think one of the exciting things about moving to Indiana wasn't just uh, but I think it's a, actually a nice place to live um, outside of Silicon Valley, but also that um, there's a ton of knowledge 
uh, and, and expertise in all of these universities that have large supercomputing facilities that for many years was useful for things like physics or chemistry, um, but suddenly is seeing a, a ton of adoption for AI and, and machine learning technology. And so I, I feel like it was one of these fateful instances where I was in the right place at the right time to pick up a lot of uh, important skills that have been very helpful now. Hmm. Interesting. And, and can you, uh, do you remember if you can share one of those skills or kind of learnings where like, oh, this is, this could, yeah. Be, yeah, it could be really helpful. So it turns out that for deep learning algorithms, uh, where we're training extremely large neural networks, um, part of the challenge is just computational that the neural networks are getting so big and the amount of data we need to train them on is so large that most of the barriers that we face to having a much higher performing system is actually, can we train this model in a reasonable amount of time? If it, if it takes you six months to train a model, then it turns out that uh, most, research can't, most research can't make progress because if I have to wait six months to get feedback, <laughs> then... Uh, then I, I just can't make progress in coming up with new ideas because it takes too long to find out whether one idea works or not. So this sort of research process is very iterative. And uh, even if you can train a model, uh, it doesn't really help. You need to get feedback as quickly as possible. So it also happens that most of the operations that we run with these deep learning algorithms look like linear algebra. They're just big matrix multiplies um, and th that involves a lot of computation. And uh, as I came to IU, I was thinking a lot about, gosh, you know, how do we solve all of these uh, really challenging uh, problems with doing very large-scale matrix multiplications? Uh, and it turned out that if uh, you were working on supercomputers all these years, you knew exactly how to solve that problem. <laughs> um, one of the favorite, my favorite things that Jeff Fox had told me is, yeah, all these problems that you're talking about, we solved them 40 years ago, but nobody <laughs> cared back then. Um, and, and it really just hit me that there's all this knowledge about how to handle these large, dense computations um, that has been waiting for a killer app. And so I, I think AI is that application. And I picked up a lot of knowledge about how to solve dense linear algebra problems and, and a lot of intuition about the scale of things that are possible on a large computer um, that have really been helpful since I've come to Baidu uh, and thinking about some of the things that should be possible now with the computing power we have. Gotcha, okay. And so some of these methods, how they just allow you to iterate a lot faster, or they cut down on the training time a lot. I, I, I'd be curious, right. like, if you weren't doing these methods, like how long would a model take you versus what you're doing now, how much time it might save you? Well, to give you an example, um, one of the first things we tried to do um, a couple years back was that many people will remember there was this uh, result from the Google Brain team uh, where they had an unsupervised learning algorithm that just looks at a whole bunch of data and just tries to find interesting patterns. Uh, it doesn't have an objective of its own. And the, this neural network had about a billion connections. Uh, with a billion free parameters to tune. Uh, and they ran this experiment on a thousand machines with 16,000 CPU cores for, uh, I think, at least a week, for probably several weeks. Um, and so when we first saw this result, I remember talking to friends like, 
well, great. What are the rest of us going to do? <laughs> uh, none of us have a thousand machines with 16,000 cores that we can be running for weeks on end. Um, but as I started getting involved in more supercomputing super applications, started to realize that deep learning uh, isn't that well suited to these giant uh, pieces of cloud infrastructure. And huh. that, in fact, when you try to run things like this on existing cloud infrastructure that big internet companies have built, uh, they are actually terribly inefficient. And so what we did was we re-implemented that experiment on what is basically a small computer, a supercomputer. So it's actually just three machines with uh, a bunch of GPUs, with actually 12 GPUs, which in hindsight is quite small, but for the time was a large experiment. Um, and we could reproduce that result in a few days on just three machines instead of a thousand machines. Wow. Uh, and so now, uh, if I look at the work we do at Baidu, um, that has really turned into something uh, highly effective, that today we can train uh, neural networks for speech recognition, that have, say, 10 billion connections, uh, and we can train them on 40 or more GPUs uh, and do it vastly uh, more efficiently than we could on a single machine or on a piece of cloud infrastructure like before. Huh. And and why is that the case? Uh, is it so much faster on like a supercomputer super versus a more distributed computing? So most uh, big distributed systems are built to handle throughput. Uh, where let's say I, I want to do a search over an enormous data set um, and I want to handle millions of users all at once. Um, these are things that parallelize really well because I can have all of my machines uh, searching their own data in parallel or I can have uh, lots of machines handling different users in parallel. And uh, that scales really nicely. Um, and those machines don't have to talk to each other very much. They just kind of have to coordinate so that uh, if each machine does some work, they can send their response back to the user and then they can all be aggregated at the end in one very small step. Uh, the problem that deep learning has is that most of the algorithms not only involve a large amount of computation, but every machine has to communicate very frequently with all the other machines um, and has to move a lot of data back and forth uh, in order to make progress. So one of the things that you would often see is if you ran uh, your favorite deep learning algorithm on you know, your, your home computer network with gigabit Ethernet, let's say, and most of the time uh, would be spent moving data back and forth over this network, and the computer actually wasn't doing that much computation uh, as it was. And so once you start packing a large number of GPUs into a machine, you had huge amounts of computing power but it was incredibly hard to use it all at once because the machine would spend a lot of time idle waiting for the other machines to catch up. And so when you start building something that looks more like a supercomputer, basically you're targeting that problem. You're saying, I'm going to build a single machine, uh, in effect, that is very tightly connected by an extremely high-speed network with lots of bandwidth and very low-latency communication. Mm. And all of these machines are going to run together uh, in lockstep. And uh, that requires a lot more orchestration, a lot more regularity to the problem, where when one machine finish, finishes its computation and sends out data to the other machine, the other machine is just finishing and is waiting to catch the ball. Um, and it's all sort of tightly coupled so that you don't waste any time. If you can do that well, 
you can run much, much faster than on uh, these larger systems with very loosely coupled machines. Mm, interesting. Makes make, makes sense. So I wonder if, uh, we, of course, Cray Computers is uh, based here in Wisconsin, so hopefully this will bode well for them. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yep. yeah. um, all right, so uh, let's talk about uh, what you're doing at Baidu. And uh, can you tell us some of the projects uh, you're working on? Yeah, yeah. At least at first. So... The the AI lab at Baidu, uh, the Silicon Valley AI lab here, is one of Baidu's uh, four research labs. Um, and one of the things that is sort of unique about our group is that we have a bunch of different skill sets all in one team. Um, so I believe that great AI research uh, will not just involve uh, working on AI algorithms, on, on deep learning algorithms. Uh, I think, um, as you can guess from the last conversation, that there are a bunch of components to uh, making progress in AI that, that are actually things like systems research. So uh, within the AI lab, we actually have two, uh, well, actually three machine learning teams. Uh, one of them is working on uh, better text-to-speech methods. Another one's working on speech recognition. And we also have a, an applied machine learning team that I'll talk about in a second. Um, and so those teams are working on machine learning algorithms. But we also have a, a high-performance computing uh, systems research team. Uh, and they're solving all of these problems that I was just talking about, where if we want to train our speech models faster or we have a, a text-to-speech model that we don't know how to put on a cloud server uh, to serve users, um, these are often systems problems. And so we have the systems research capacity in-house to help solve those. And then we also have an AI product team. Because um, I think um, there's just so many things we could do in AI research that for us, the, the most important thing to do is make sure we solve the problems that are going to have the most impact for people. Um, and it, it helps a lot to be developing your own products and have product experts who are thinking hard about user experience and what the pain point is for, for everyday people so that when we do AI research, we solve all the problems that matter to them. Uh, and so uh, that's also why we have this applied machine learning team uh, that spends a lot of time uh, thinking about the AI research that's coming out of the, the research community and our own team uh, and thinking about how to tweak those things uh, or, or guide them so that they land in a product. Uh, so those are all the teams that we have working right now. And then uh, each of them has a, a whole portfolio of problems that they're working on. So, for example, the high-performance computing team um, is uh, actually incredibly exciting because the hardware that we're starting to see today um, has uh, is on this trajectory where, in a few years' time, we're going to see something like between a hundred and a one thousand x speed up uh, possible for our deep learning algorithms through a combination of getting more powerful hardware from hardware vendors. Um, just because of Moore's law, uh, through architectural changes that hardware vendors are making, uh, specifically for deep learning now, uh, and also just uh, through capital. So if we just buy more hardware and we string them together in a bigger network, we can get um, more speed up. Uh, the trouble is that none of that stuff comes for free. That uh, even if we can buy the machines, most of the software techniques we use today just aren't suitable for the types of hardware um, that we're going to see over the next several years. 
And so what our systems team is figuring out is how to change all of our training algorithms, how to change the way we deploy uh, these models so that we can actually use all of that new hardware that, that's coming up. Um, so that's a really exciting trend uh, in AI, which is the fact that all of the hardware now is starting to follow AI rather than the other way around. Um, and then, uh, as I mentioned, we have a, a speech research and text-to-speech team. Uh, the reason that we're working on those two problems is because, especially in China and in developing economies, many people are actually mobile first, and the next generation of devices out there uh, aren't necessarily going to have screens. And so uh, your ability to interact with a device in a very natural way becomes crucial. So being able to have a device that speaks to you in a very natural voice that, that you enjoy, but also um, making it possible for you to speak to that device and have it understand you, those two um, components are crucial to these next generation devices because we're not going to have touch screens anymore, uh, or perhaps our screens are going to be too small uh, for touch to really be viable. And so it's going to be really critical for us to have these technologies to enable that next generation of interfaces. And yeah, so you're working on some really interesting projects, of course. And so what, uh, what are some of your biggest challenges? Like with either the um, text speech or speech rec- recognition? I mean, I'm just, I know you have lots of challenges, but what's something that's kind of a... Uh, One of the ones that keeps me up at night yeah. is how we're <laughs> going to get away from labeled data. Huh. Um, I think one of the really exciting things that's happening uh, today is that most of the new products people are imagining uh, are things where speech recognition will be incredibly valuable um, as, as an interface to the product and as a way for people to interact much more naturally and efficiently with technology. The trouble is that every time uh, a manufacturer releases a new uh, product, uh, the acoustics uh, of that uh, system because of the microphone, because of the product design can actually change. And sometimes they'll release it uh, to a market that's a little bit different where people have maybe an accent uh, that you haven't heard before. And this is especially challenging in China where you often have communities uh, with very thick accents that can be hard even for a native speaker to understand. Um, and so when you're faced with an ecosystem like that, it's not enough for us just to do sort of speech research on our benchmark data set uh, and make improvements there. We actually have to be thinking about how are we going to solve the machine learning problem where I need to make a speech recognition system that works for people who with an accent I've never heard before with a use case I haven't thought about, uh, and I need to make it work for them quickly before the product is even launched. And so you have so little data that a lot of our traditional machine learning methods, and especially deep learning methods, have a hard time adapting to that scenario easily. Uh, it becomes very expensive uh, to try to get all of the data through these situations. But if we're really going to change the world with speech recognition, and we're going to make it work for everybody, uh, not just for the lucky few of us that don't have much of an accent, um, then we really have to think hard about how we're going to make deep learning work well uh, with a lot less data than we're accustomed to have. Yeah, and that seems like a, a problem with a, in a lot of areas. If it's, but it seems like no one's really uh, cracked that nut of uh, reducing the amount of data necessary. Because you you hear a lot about different a lot of different applications for AI, but man, they all require the fairly large amounts of data, <laughs> and so it's worked yeah. well for some areas. But 
you know, how how far away are we from, you know, having models that don't require, this is kind of a generic broad question, but <laughs> how far away from yeah, models? It's hard to say. I think we've all known uh, in the research community that unsupervised learning would be a, a huge boon uh, if we could figure out how to get it to work. Um, many years ago, a lot of us thought that uh, unsupervised learning was going to be uh, the uh, sort of the driving force behind progress in deep learning, and, and that actually turned out turned out to be wrong. Um, that supervised learning, where I just give you the correct answer and you have to update your neural network uh, based on seeing the correct answer, uh, supervised learning actually worked perfectly fine if you had a huge amount of data and a really big neural network. It turned out that the answer was scale. Um, and so we've been pushing hard on scale, and that's got us pretty far, and I think we've got a little bit more room left. But uh, increasingly, I think we're returning to this uh, unsupervised learning challenge and thinking, gosh, uh, we really have to figure this out if we're going to make progress. And there are so many things going on in the field that um, I think we're making a ton of progress on applications. I think reinforcement learning um, has, has shown that we can get really good results if we have good simulators and so on. Um, I don't find that stuff, though, quite as surprising. Uh, what I think will be the huge watershed is going to be if we start to make a lot of progress on supervised learning. And so over the last year or two, uh, I think there have been some very exciting developments uh, with something called adversarial networks, um, also just a number of different methods for uh, improving how well we can generalize to new data. So I don't see a clear cut path for how those things are going to solve this problem of, um, of letting us generalize to all these new applications the way that a human can. Uh, but I, I think the starting points are starting to show up. So I'm, I'm hopeful that over the next couple of years, we're, we're going to see a break. Really? Uh, huh. That if we can find the right lever uh, <laughs> to open up those floodgates, um, then we'll be able to use unlabeled data at least, or, or perhaps uh, be able to get by with a lot less data overall. Interesting. Okay. And and can you describe, you know, what's the difference between supervised and unsupervised quick just for the, the audience? <laughs> just yeah. Nice. So to take an example uh, with our, our speech recognition system, uh, the way that you train these speech systems is you give them a lot of examples of the input, which is uh, an audio clip. Uh, that you've recorded from someone. And then you also give the, the learning algorithm the correct answer. So if I tell Dave, uh, you know, hello from Sunnyvale, then I could record that audio clip and give it to the speech system. And the speech system can make a prediction uh, for, for what it thinks that I said. And early on in its learning process, it'll probably make a terrible prediction. Um, but if I also give it the transcription, I actually write out the text, hello from Sunnyvale, uh, and I give it to... Uh, the learning algorithm, then it will go and tweak all of the parameters in the neural network uh, to try to give the correct answer next time. If we do this over and over and over again, uh, then eventually the system will learn to give correct transcriptions. And the important defining characteristic of the supervised learning approach is that I have to have that transcription. I've got to have the text uh, of the correct um, transcription. So unsupervised learning, by contrast, would mean giving the speech recognition system huge amounts of audio, um, but with no transcription, and then asking it to please do something useful so that if I later ask you to transcribe audio, given just a handful of examples, uh, you, can do, uh, you can do that much faster. 
we'd really like to do this because especially for something like speech recognition, it turns out that getting high quality uh, transcribed data is very expensive. Nice. Very, thank you. That was good. And so, uh, you know, you've been around AI for many years now. Does, uh, does AI ever surprise you? Like, does it ever come up with a results are like, huh, that's interesting. Or, uh, yeah. I think the thing that just as a, as a phenomenon, I think one of the things that shocks me the most right now is how easy it is to get something 90% working and how unbelievably hard it is to get <laughs> something that's like 95 to 99% working. Um, it, the, the deep learning algorithms we have today are remarkably generic. Uh, you can throw almost any um, pattern matching problem at them, uh, and they'll find a way to give you a pretty decent solution. So when we started working on text-to-speech, there are all of these sub-problems that you have to solve. Uh, so, for example, you need to learn how to take English characters and map them to a phonetic representation uh, that tells you how to pronounce it. And English spelling is horribly complex. Uh, and, and so trying to figure out how to pronounce a new word that you've never seen before, uh, just based on its English spelling is, is even hard for a human. And yet, if you just train this thing on a whole bunch of known pronunciation, uh, it can actually learn to do really well. Um, and it's not perfect, but it actually, uh, performs comparably to other state of the art methods you could choose. Um, and likewise, we could take the same deep learning system and throw it at uh, the problem of converting those phonetic representations to audio waves, or throw it at the problem of looking at a bunch of audio uh, and chopping it up into little slices that the text-to-speech engine has to learn from. So all of these different sub-problems can be solved with the exact same technique um, up to a reasonably uh, good level of performance. But the thing that turns out to be incredibly hard is getting from the thing that's working decently well all the way to 99%, to something that's almost indistinguishable from a person's performance. Uh, and that's where I think the AI lab um, is really uh, trying to push forward that I think we do uh, a fair bit of research ourselves, um, but the thing that uh, we're especially good at is solving all of the sort of other challenges that are necessary to get to 99%. Um, you might need to come up with a fantastic new way of getting large quantities of data. You might need a totally new uh, piece of software written to run at extremely large scale on a supercomputer. Uh, you might not even need to think about how you change the user interface of a product uh, and handle all the human issues involved with a, how a person interacts with a speech engine uh, in order to get to a, a product experience that feels a lot like talking to a human or listening to a human. Huh. And so we're set up to handle all of those things together so that we don't just produce a research paper that gives you 90% performance, but we can solve all of the things uh, in the entire pipeline that are going to get you to 99% performance. Interesting. And and if it's not confidential, I was curious, you, know, you mentioned the, the UI example, what, you know, you could change the UI in order to improve the performance. I'm kind of curious what you had in mind there. So some of the things that um, we don't get a lot of attention in the research world um, are things like, uh, you know, how do you set up uh, a user interface so that a person knows when the device is listening to them, how do they know um, when the device has stopped listening to them, and then importantly, how does the device know uh, <laughs> what the person is doing? 
Um, so how does the device know that the person has stopped speaking and it should uh, take action? And how does the device um, give you feedback about um, what its current beliefs are, uh, what you want it to do? And even better, this is something that, uh, frankly, none of the current systems do very well. Uh, if I make a mistake as, as a machine learning algorithm, and as a human, you try to correct me and say, no, I didn't say that. I, I meant this. Uh, these are things that humans aren't bothered by. We're not bothered by stuttering. We're not bothered by, um, you know, we're not bothered by not knowing when a person has stopped speaking or started speaking. None of these things actually matter. We're, we're remarkably good at figuring out the beginnings and ends of, of what people want to say. Um, but the machine learning algorithms we have today and the way that they're integrated with products don't really solve this uh, to my satisfaction. I, I still have a hard time with, with um, products from pretty much any big internet company at this point. And it's a mix of getting that machine learning algorithm to understand when you stop speaking and do that really well, but also setting up the user interface so that you can push back and, and give the person some feedback on what you believe is going on. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, that's. Uh, I didn't think about that. That's clever. Like, it makes sense. Well, one um, of the, actually, one of the things that um, uh, listeners can try out is we've created a, a voice-first keyboard called TalkType uh, for oh. Android. So if you go to talktype.baidu.com, you can try it out. And what we're trying to do there is look at the way most companies design the keyboards on their phones and recognize that you know, very often we just have this keyboard, which is the way we've always interacted with our devices, and then someone hands us a speech engine that's pretty good, but not amazing. Uh, so what we do as product designers is we bolt a little microphone button on, uh, and then if you press the microphone, I'm going to switch modes and, and all of this. Uh, and this always felt to me like a very clunky experience. And so what we we're trying to do with TalkType is make speech the, the first thing that you use and put it in your face all the time and see what happens. And we actually learned a ton about it. Um, so, for example, uh, I often hear people say, well, I'd never use speech to interact with my phone because you know, I don't really want to talk to it uh, in public or uh, you know, it doesn't work all the time and things like that. Um, but once I started using it and I'm really sort of forced to rely on it because it's the default method on my phone, uh, I was actually shocked at how quickly my own habits changed. That, you know, even if I'm sitting on a bus or something, I don't mind kind of murmuring to my phone the way I would talk to a friend uh, in the seat next to me. Um, it actually is a, an easy habit to build. And once you start to recognize that, you can start uh, developing other features that, if they're natural enough, if it's like talking to the person in the seat next to you, people will actually use. Um, but you, you end up seeing that you've really got to get to that same level of naturalness in order for it to be successful. Interesting. Yeah, I could see I've been using voice more in my phone just because it is, it is nice, especially if you want to like send a long text, that long text. And I, uh, I got my mom, she, she never did texting, but then I'm like, Oh, you can just like press this, you know, uh, Mike, like you, like you mentioned. And so now she texts a lot more. So it, uh, but you know, it's not great like the user experience isn't great, but, uh, yeah, I can see, I think it would be awesome to try that out. Talk type is what it's called, right? Yep. That's okay. right. And, you know, the ultimate goal for all of these things is to make devices as natural to interact with as people. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's pretty remarkable for something like, uh, navigation, 
my wife and I took a lot of road trips while we were in the Midwest. And, uh, you know, to avoid um, having our eyeballs on our phones, which is just an incredibly dangerous thing that, uh, that's going on right now in the, in the United States, uh, you know, the person who's in the passenger seat would just hold the phone. And you could actually get virtually anything done that way just by talking uh, to, to the passenger. You say, oh, what's the next turn coming up? And if something wasn't clear, they could clarify and you could get a hotel booked. And it was pretty amazing that even if you're not really using the intelligence of your passenger to get things done, uh, just being able to, in effect, speak to the device um, was incredibly freeing. And it's clearly possible to get all of your questions answered. But unfortunately, the device itself just doesn't have that kind of experience yet. We don't have the, the natural language and speech technologies to make that happen. Uh, but I think in the future, this is going to happen. Um, and thankfully, uh, too, since I think right now we could all do uh, certainly with being able to interact with technology, but also keep our eyes on the road. Got it. Interesting. All right. Well, I think that almost answers my next question. And I know we're almost out of time. We're, we're probably going over, but this is uh, pretty interesting. So hopefully that's okay. And, uh, um, you know, I was curious about in the next five years, like what, what do you see coming out of using neural networks or AI that um, people necessarily aren't thinking about now? But you just mentioned the, the voice kind of interaction. That could be that could be your answer right there. I don't know if you had any other ideas of what could be coming yeah. our way. I think one of the realizations that's happened over the last few years, especially in Silicon Valley, uh, is that um, AI is not a product by itself. Um, and... You, you could often see startups when uh, deep learning was becoming popular that were founded on this idea that we're going to do amazing deep learning technology and, and we're going to build uh, a platform out of that. And uh, to some degree, that's been helpful. It, it gives people access to the technology in a way that wasn't possible before. Uh, but it's very difficult to build a great product out of that, um, partly because the deep learning algorithms uh, aren't sufficiently automated uh, that you can get the best performance that way, but also because of the need for integration, the need to you know have your speech user interface um, very closely coupled with the speech engine and how it functions, uh, for example. So I think the thing that that is coming up that everyone needs to be thinking about is how are we going to create these sort of delightful vertically integrated AI products? Um, and that, I think, is not just a technology challenge, like how do I make a speech engine better, um, but it's even just a challenge for, for organizations that innovate. Yeah. Is how do you get people who are product experts and machine learning researchers and systems researchers, how do you get them all to work uh, under one roof so that you can make all of that vertical integration happen? So that um, a machine learning engineer who's thinking about um, which classifier they should tweak today to make the product better actually knows how to think like a product person and, and can think about user pain and how they could address it. And likewise, how can a, a product manager or a product developer who really understands users and really thinks hard about user interfaces can understand what's possible with machine learning technology and how to interact with machine learning engineers uh, and communicate well with them. Uh, I think that's something that we haven't really faced before in no in the course of AI development. We've always been happy to just throw a speech engine up on the web and let the product people figure it out. Uh, but I don't think that's going to fly anymore. Hmm. That's good. That's good. Okay. And uh, 
so uh, last question. I'm uh, and then we'll we'll end it. But uh, you know, I'm curious. How do you uh, how do you get away from work? Like, what what do you like to do uh, outside of uh, AI? And maybe it's more AI, but. <laughs> What do you like to do? Well, right now, uh, I have I have two children under two, so they are pretty much my <laughs> life outside of work. Good um, but that's okay. It's actually, um, as an AI researcher, it is especially remarkable uh, to see how far we are, even from the capabilities of a two-year-old. <laughs> uh, I I made the mistake of showing my my two-year-old son that you could flip this latch on the back door in order to open the slider and go outside, and I was like, well, he's not going to remember how to do this, so I'll just show him once. And sure enough, he learned instantly, um, even though, you know, it's a very non-obvious computer vision problem. It's a very difficult thing to manipulate. It's a heavy door. It didn't matter. He just had to see it once, partly demonstrated, and now he's capable of getting out of the house. Um, and when I saw him do this, I was just stunned. I was like, oh my goodness, I have no idea how to build a robot that can do, uh, what he just did is learn from so little data. Um, although I have to say that, uh, we're making progress on things like that, that our ability to get, uh, machines to learn from one or two examples, uh, for very simple tasks is getting close, but I, I think they're still nowhere close to a toddler. <laughs> well, and that's a good way. To end. I, yeah, kids definitely uh, keep you humble um, and exhausted. <laughs> but yes, the, the, especially as a researcher. Yeah, exactly. Like, oh man. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to end. And uh, Adam, really appreciate your time. And this is great. I mean, really good at articulating a pretty complex subject, and uh, which isn't easy to do. <laughs> and uh, um, so, yeah, appreciate it. I learned a lot. So uh, I'm, I'm hoping everyone else will learn a lot too. So thanks, Adam. And thanks a lot, David. Really appreciate it. Definitely. And thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. As always, I uh, greatly appreciate it. We'll see you next time. Bye.